Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. We would stand for our scripture reading today. It comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And I'm going to read verses 22, uh, I'm sorry, 34. I'm going to read verses 19 to 28. I think it says 22 on the screen, but that's okay. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Aziah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, which is the king. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Again, this is to King Josiah now. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place, And its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Today's message is based on a woman in the Bible named Huldah. Now, Huldah is the kind of name no one in a million years would ever choose, unless they have a long pointy nose and travel on a broom. Even so, this short, little, obscure story of Huldah stirs my soul. The only thing we know about her is what we just read in Second Chronicles and a duplicate passage that is in Second Kings. She's not named on any biblical list of faithful people. She is not held up anywhere else in the Bible as an example for us to follow. But she served a vital purpose here at the beginning of a national revival where the people of God were beginning to return to God. And here's what happened. King Josiah, who at the time was 26 years old, was in the process of repairing the temple and restoring it. It had been neglected. It was in ruins. And he started this effort to restore the temple. And in the midst of what we might call this spring cleaning effort, the law of Moses was found in some back room in the temple. Think about that. The very book God 
in which God's instructions were given to the nation of Israel had somehow been pushed aside and relegated to a dusty back room and over the years it lost its importance in shaping the people of Israel. But in this cleanup it was found and it was brought to King Josiah and it was read to King Josiah and as we read, when he heard the words of the law, he tore his robe in an act of repentance, he cried out to God and he wept because he realized he and his people had strayed from God. He then instructed the high priest, whose name was Hilkiah, and his secretary, Abdon, and a couple of other important men to, quote, go and inquire of the Lord and find out what he wants us to do. And these guys immediately went to speak with our friend, Huldah. That gets my attention. In verse 22, she is called a prophet. And she offers sobering words of judgment from God to the king and to the nation of Israel. She essentially says, trouble is coming because of your unfaithfulness. And this launches King Josiah, if you keep reading through the chapter, into a series of reforms as part of a national return to God. Huldah is a parenthetical comment in this nationwide revival that broke out under King Josiah. And yet her story stirs my soul. She gets me thinking about what it means to be a soulful person. One who is genuinely close with God. One who genuinely and intimately knows God. And has an actual vibrant present tense relationship with God. In our summer series, as you may know, we're considering different stories in the Bible that reach into our depths and stir something in us. We're not so much concerned with explaining in detail why the story stirs us, but with listening to the stirring, paying attention to it, and most especially growing toward the vision of God and life revealed in and through the story. And so this story of Huldah stirs my soul first because she is a woman. Let me explain. Not long ago, I was facilitating a conversation with a group of about 40 pastors and church leaders, and we reached a break in our time together. And an African-American woman approached me at the break and asked a question. And in the course of whatever my response was, I could tell she was becoming flustered and agitated. And finally, she stopped me and said, okay, I'm really angry right now, and I don't know why. And I said something like, people often become spontaneously angry in my presence, so don't worry about it. (laughs) And she began to elaborate on what she was feeling, and then she said, and obviously this isn't a quote, but she said something like this, Okay, I know why I'm angry. I work at a church in the area of discipleship and spiritual formation, and I find it really difficult to capture the attention of my congregation. The church won't call me a pastor because I am a woman, so I am the director of spiritual formation. You sit up here and talk about the same kind of subjects, and people listen to you. And I know it's more complicated than this, but it occurs to me one of the reasons people in the church listen to you is because you are a man, and one of the reasons people in my church don't listen to me is because I am a woman, a black one, in case you haven't noticed, she said. And the whole thing just makes me mad. 
And I just looked at her and said, you go, girl. This conversation impacted me very deeply. And it still does. She wasn't blaming me for being a man. She wasn't excusing herself from the work she needed to put in to learn about spiritual formation and then live it out. But in those few moments, she was expressing her frustrations as a female pastor and leader in an evangelical Christian church. And it was agonizing to hear her pain. And I couldn't stop thinking about what it must be like to passionately care about the kingdom of God and passionately care about Jesus' church, but be hindered or restrained or mitigated in your leadership because you are a woman. And yet, and I don't know if you know this or not, this happens frequently in the evangelical Christian church. My soul is stirred when I read about Huldah because she lived at a time when men ruled the world, men were in charge, men supposedly had the weight of the world on their shoulders. It was where the culture was at the time, and I get that. Even so, right on the front end of a national revival where King Josiah is beginning to turn the hearts of the Israelites back to God, these important men seek out a woman who is a prophet because she knows God and she speaks his words to these powerful and important men. I don't have any axe to grind today and I don't have a hobby horse to ride. But the issue of women and their role in the church is important to me. It stirs my soul, as we say in the series. I've been in too many settings similar to the one I just described, and I've heard too many painful stories similar to the one I just described. We may not realize this here at Oak Hills, but in many, many Christian circles all over our country, this issue of women in the church and their roles is a big issue. There are at least two observations I think we can make about women and the evangelical church. And when we say evangelical church, just for the sake of getting our minds around it, we're talking about something that began roughly in the mid-1500s. First observation, women have often been muted and marginalized by the evangelical Christian church. I attended Trinity Seminary, which is in Deerfield, Illinois, uh, from 1989 to 1993, and at that time there were many women paying a whole bunch of tuition and studying for their master's degree in theology or for their master's of divinity or their master's in religion, just like I was. They could graduate and go off to another part of the world and serve God in all sorts of ways, but in the evangelical church in North America, upon graduation, carrying the exact same degree that I had, if they were looking for a job in an evangelical church, their roles were pretty much limited to children's ministry, women's ministry, or the church secretary. And here's the thing. In many contexts, believe this or not, this is still the case. This DNA is still in the church. Second observation. Women have often been the ones whose service and sacrifice and insight and prayer has provided invaluable leadership in the church. Women are often the custodians of a local church's spirituality and spiritual formation. So while the evangelical church has often hesitated 
to call women leaders or to ordain them as pastors, women have in fact led and led brilliantly and sacrificially and poured themselves out in ways that from a human perspective have sustained and carried the church. We don't have the time in this series or in this sermon to unpack all of the relevant issues related to the role of women in the church or consider all of the relevant biblical passages in this debate. But let me say this. When I arrived in California in 1995, the elder board of Oak Hills Church was beginning the process of praying and reading and discerning its perspective on the role of women in this church. Pastor Kent led those discussions 24 years ago is when that was. I was part of those discussions. We wrestled with relevant passages in the Bible. We pondered and thought about and struggled with the insights of brilliant theologians and brilliant scholars who line up on different sides of this issue of women in church leadership. And we discussed hours on end and sought to discern where God wanted Oak Hills to land on this issue. And in the church world today, these conversations in some cases are just beginning or they're continuing to occur. And sometimes, believe it or not, fierce debates happen. Some pastors and leaders and churches and denominations hold up the issue of women in leadership as a crucial test of biblical fidelity. So if this particular view of the role of women in the church or that view is not upheld by the leadership core of the church or the leadership of whatever denomination, then the attitude goes, air quotes, we quit. We will no longer affiliate with said church or with said denomination. And I cannot disagree more vigorously with this. I can't disagree more vigorously with this my way or I am out of here approach to issues like this that have complexity to them. And this is why this table is so important in forming the soul of our congregation in Christ likeness, because it's at this table we remember, we rehearse mutual submission, grace, We bring our differences and we subordinate them to our brother and sisterhood in Christ. This is a table where we learn about sacrificial love and we learn about working through conflict instead of running away from it. And all of these things are extensions of Jesus' table in the everyday life of a congregation. There are three overall perspectives on the role of women in the evangelical church. And churches usually adopt one of these perspectives or a hybrid combination of these perspectives. And what I'm going to do is a bit risky, I realize it, but uh, I'm going to try and quickly summarize the three common views using mostly the language of those who subscribe to the particular view I'm talking about. So much of what I'm about to say are essentially quotes from those who subscribe to the view in question. I'm sure there's variations. I'm sure people who hold these views rigorously would say, well, wait a minute, we don't think this or that. And I get all that. It's more complicated than this. This is a quick summary. I understand. But these are not really my words. These are words that uh, are coming from others. The first view is sometimes called the hierarchical view or the traditional view of women in leadership within a church. And this view is based on a hierarchical understanding 
of the relationship of God to Christ, to man, to woman. This is how God intended things to work best. This view holds. And this view is based on Paul's argument, among other things, in 1 Corinthians 11, where he presents a chain of hierarchy. Christ is subject to the Father. Man is subject to Christ. Women, woman is subject to man. So the traditional view stresses things like female submission and dependence. A woman's role in relation to home, church, and society then is to be in submission to her husband or to male leadership and, to, and dependent upon him or them. She has her own sphere and freedom to exercise her spiritual gifts, but it is ultimately under the leadership of the male who takes the lead in the home and in the church that her gifts are then expressed. The next view is called the complementarian view. And a complementarian is one who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. Males were designed to shine the spotlight of Christ's relationship to the church and God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot. And females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to God in a way that males cannot. So who we are as male and female is not ultimately about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. And we do this best, this view holds, in a complementary way. So a complementarian holds the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and in their personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles they fulfill in marriage and society and in the church. And in this view... Women are typically allowed to serve in some capacities within the church, but often they are not and cannot be appointed as elders. They often are not and cannot be ordained as pastors. And their preaching or their teaching is under the guidance and under the leadership of a man. The third view is called the egalitarian view. It's from a French word that means equality. And this view believes that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, in the church, or in society. Egalitarians then understand the Bible as teaching the fundamental equality of women and men, of all racial and ethnic groups, all economic classes, and all age groups based on the teaching and example of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 is a critical verse for the egalitarians. So men and women are designed by their creator to have no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill. According to this view, then, women and men can serve as pastors, as elders, as deacons. So egalitarians believe that roles in the church are to be gift-based rather than gender-based. They advocate for the ordination of women as pastors, as elders, and any other authoritative teaching positions within the body of Christ. Now, if you're bored to tears, I would strongly encourage you to go over there and paint on one of those little cards, because that's what it's there for. I'm sure that's more than you ever wanted to know about this subject. Here at Oak Hills, for the last 23 years, I enthusiastically want to say to you, we have adhered to an egalitarian position. That doesn't mean everyone around here agrees with that. Healthy and constructive disagreement within a church creates far more authentic community than across-the-board alignment on every issue. And it's in situations like this, where differences exist, that we once again discover the power of the communion table to unite us together in, and more importantly, under, the kingship of Jesus. 
Now, personally, my life, my ministry, my leadership in the church, my spiritual formation in Christ's likeness has been profoundly influenced by many gifted women God has brought to Oak Hills over the years. There was a time when our elder board was men only. Thank God, literally, those days are behind us. Why? Because we're a better church and a more Christ-like church because of the wise and gifted and discerning female leaders on our elder board, on our staff, leading small groups, leading ministry teams, and in the congregation. Second uh, reason that Hulda stirs my soul is because she was a friend of God. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, and for many, many years... I've been fascinated with the whole space race of the 60s. And by the coordinated and collaborated effort required by so many thousands of people working over so many years to get Neil Armstrong on the moon on July 20th, 1969. I'm sure you've seen footage of a Saturn V rocket launch. 300 feet long. Aerodynamic machine. Blasting off the ground in a bombastic flurry of explosion and fire, and force, speeding through the atmosphere until eventually the immense power and thrust compel the rocket beyond the pull of the Earth's gravity. And off it goes to the moon. I mean, just think of the unimaginable force and thrust required to break the bounds of gravity. It's a picture of incredible power. But there is power of a different kind and a different quality. And I imagine you have experienced it just as I have. It's not big or loud or overwhelming like a rocket ship, but it is incredibly and equally powerful. Strangely, this power is often contained in small, hidden, quiet packages. I'm talking about the incredible power of someone who is a friend of God. And I don't mean that in a casual way. I mean it like James meant it when he described Abraham as someone who was God's friend. Or like Exodus 33 describes Moses as someone God spoke with face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Or how Jesus meant it in John 15 when he told his disciples he no longer calls them servants but friends, and then this great phrase, because he's revealed the Father to them. He's let them in on the intimacies of his Father. This is the power that emanates off a person who is a friend of God, an intimate of God, a lover of God. These are people of spiritual substance. They have a weightiness to them. They are powerful, but they are humble. And ironically, or maybe not, they're often quiet people. They're often hidden people. They rarely stand on platforms like this. 
They're even sometimes small of stature in an ironic sort of a twist. They aren't trying to be powerful. They're not trying to say profound things. They're not trying to make us think they're spiritual. They actually are. And their presence, their bodily posture, their words, their face, their eyes, their questions, and perhaps most of all, their silence is incredibly powerful and influential. We're talking about those rare people who are further along the road toward forgetting self. Or in Jesus' words, they are further along the road toward dying to self. In the pattern of Jesus, Paul describes in Philippians 2 and verse 7, they are people who, quote, make themselves nothing. So they might experience God God more fully and intimately. These are not perfect people. But my experience being around folks like this is they seem more whole and less fractured more at peace, and less troubled by petty jealousies and paralyzing insecurities, more grateful, and less infected with the virus of complaint. These are people who seem at ease with themselves, and at ease in their physical body, unburdened by typical crises of identity or body image pressures. We're talking about those people who, by virtue of their heart and character, have been with God. They know God. They commune with Him. They are His friend. And we can feel and sense their intimacy with God when we are with them and when we are around them. I could name names right now of those in this congregation who possess this kind of rocket power in their souls. They listen more than they speak. They pray more than they speak. They live a certain kind of life and virtually everyone who interacts with them realizes it. Union with God is how the ancient mothers and fathers of our faith described this way of living. And I know I'm reaching a bit and I'm saying more than perhaps the Bible says about our friend, but I think Huldah was this kind of person. She was a friend of God. She clearly had a reputation as a woman who has been with God and who knew God. And so, and I love this, when these big shots wanted to know what God wanted them to do, they hurried to her house and asked her. And she spoke words of wisdom straight from the mouth of the God she knew so well. And here is the link to us, to you and I. Every one of us who identifies as Christian has been called to die to self that we might more fully experience God and know him more intimately and become a friend of his. Every one of us who identifies as Christian has been called to be God's friend, to die to self that we might experience him more fully. And obviously, this happens by inches. It's slow. The worst thing we can do is strain to try to make it happen. But if we're going to develop this kind of close, intimate friendship with God, we have to set aside time to be with Him, time to be present to His presence. 
we have to set aside time to do what all relationships do that are growing, which is spend unhurried time together without an agenda, without having to make something happen, just being together. It's a foundational component of any relationship, pulling up a chair to spend time with the other, being together, dwelling in each other's presence. And without this foundational component, people pass each other on their way to doing the next thing life requires of them. And similarly, without this foundational component, we pass God on our way to doing the next thing life requires of us. A friend of God. I'd like to be that. I'd like to know God in a deeper way. I would like to be more whole in my interior life. I would like to be more at peace within. I'd like to be more at home in this body. I'd like to rest deeper. Relax into the care of Jesus. Trust him with all the things I mistakenly think I have to figure out. I'd like to be present where I actually am and with the people I am actually with instead of my mind being off somewhere else. I'd like to be able to sit quietly, alone, with God and do nothing. Just me and him. Without that inner panic. Without hearing the noise of 10,000 thoughts. Without feeling the oppression of 10,000 insecurities. How does one inch closer to God and become a closer friend of his? Simple answer. Time with him. Time being with him. So I have a midsummer exercise for us. In a few weeks, the fall pace will be at full throttle. And before that gets here, I want to encourage us to make time to be with God. And I would encourage us to do this this week. Fifteen minutes or more, a few times this week. In the morning, if that's our thing. Later at night, if that's our thing. Alone with God, a purposeful slowing to be with God. A really practical way to do this is take a walk somewhere in nature. No phone, no iPad, as little noise as possible. And believe me, I get it. Pastors suggest exercises and practices, and it becomes just one more to-do on an already impossible list of to-dos, and few ever do these exercises. I get it. We were taught in seminary uh, to be ready to be ignored, so that's not a big deal. I hope this doesn't come across, however, as one more thing. Because I think many of us probably desperately need this. Be good for our souls. Be good for our inner lives. And I would suggest using Psalm 4610 as a stabilizer in this time alone with God. It's on the screens. And it says, be still and know that I am God. I would suggest that that be the stabilizer for us as we seek to do this midsummer exercise. We don't need to look this verse up. 
We don't need to bring the Bible to this in order to look this verse up. It's pretty simple. Be still and know that I am God. It's going to stay on the screen for the rest of the time. And I promise you, if you look at it three or four times, you'll have it memorized. One of the things frantic and busy people like us can be sure of is that when we finally make the space and set aside the time to be alone with God, we will not be still. Our insides will be like a washing machine. In fact, what will happen is we will have withdrawals, actual withdrawals. Fear and worry and shame and anger and lust will launch like rockets within us. Why? Because we live off adrenaline. And we probably don't know how to be alone with God. So we should expect fiery rocket explosions when we try. And the stabilizer is Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Translation. The fire rockets, the rockets start firing within us and those stillness. Translation. It's okay. Let the insecurity come. Be still and know that I am God. Let the anxiety rise. I got to do this. I got to do that. Okay, let it rise. Let it be there. Don't fight it. Don't have to pretend you're not thinking that way because you are. Let it rise. Just stabilize. Be still. And know that I am God. These are words from God to you and to me in those moments. Be still. It's okay. Don't pretend you're still. Be still. Let this stuff rise. Hand it over. It's okay. You're not a rotten person. We all have thoughts that are like busy intersections at rush hour. Okay. Let the thoughts about needing to do this or that, let it emerge. But be still and know that I'm God and stay there and see what the Spirit does. The formation of our inner life is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's an actual work of God the Spirit in us, cultivating, forming, shaping, transforming. Be still and know that I am God. This work of formation is His work as we invite Him to do it. Here's our job in this. Our job is to make time to be alone with him, or if you will, our job is to pull up a chair with him. Would you pray with me? It's good to learn how to do this. It's good to try this and fail at it a thousand times. If you think for one second that on those occasions when I sit in my backyard by myself and try to practice this, if you think for one minute that I am not a feverish ball of chaos, let me introduce you to the truth. Learning how to do this in a competitive Striving, straining, comparative world is essential to having a soul that is expanding and becoming a friend of the living God.
Learning to sit with ourselves without panicking. Learning to sit with ourselves even as the insecurities come rushing in like rodents. And just let them be. And be with those things in the presence of God as we do our best to be still and know intimately. Ah, He is God. Not me. He is God. Resting there. Leaning on Him. Sitting in the quiet. Remembering how things are arranged. He is God. Listening and trusting. Spirit of the living God, we would like to know you more intimately. At least we think we would. Help that become a reality. And we pray for your voice, leading, gentleness, tenderness, to beckon us to be with you. To open up space to be with you and then to allow you to do whatever it is that you would do. And we trust you that what you will do in the depths of our being will be good. We thank you for this privilege of journeying together, loving you together, following you together, sacrificing together, being the church, being brothers and sisters, and doing our very best to allow your transforming presence to captivate us and shine through us that we might be a beacon of light in this dark world. Help this continue to become a reality. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. There is food in the back, and I would encourage you to get some.